Test, test, testing. All right, welcome. Did everybody get a handout? So last week we didn't quite finish, um, but that's fine. We're not gonna finish that last section from last week. It was the, um, the first Abrahamic promise fulfilled. We're gonna look at that next week because that's related to what we're talking about here this week. So it'll fit better next week. We'll pick it up then and discuss it. Um, today, we are going to be talking about the Old Covenant. It goes by a few different names. The Old Covenant, sometimes just the law. Uh, the Sinai Covenant, right? It was made with Israel on Mount Sinai. Sometimes, rarely, it'll be referred to as the, the Horeb covenant because um, the first generation was killed in the wilderness and God reiterated it with the second uh, generation in the wilderness at Mount Horeb. Um, so it goes by a few different names, but uh, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, the law, the old covenant is what we'll be looking at today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we can spend together um, to gather together around your word. We ask that you would uh, pour out your spirit upon us today that you would give me uh, accurate words to speak your word Give us ears to understand it correctly We ask this in Jesus name. Amen All righty everybody. Yeah, everybody's got a handout. I changed the font this week. I like this one a little bit better But let me know if you have a preference. So does anybody know what this is? All right it is a terrarium, yes. My sons love to make terrariums. This is one that um, my son Henry made. Now, a terrarium is kind of unique. It's, it's a closed system. It's like a miniature ecosystem, right? It's got its own, you could seal this up for 100 years or whatever, and it would continue to live and grow. And, um, you know, it's got its own microclimate and moisture and all these different things living in it. So basically, it's a, it's a miniature model Right, of the world's ecosystem, what's going out in the world. He makes you know, little plants that kind of look like little trees and, and all these different things. Um, but it's kind of a miniature model. It's an analogy right, of the real ecosystem out there in the world. So that's similar to how I look at the Old Covenant and Israel and life in the land of Canaan. It's kind of a little microcosm, a little analogy, a little sealed off system of, of the whole world and all of creation and redemption and all of that. So we're going to see a lot of echoes of the Garden of Eden that we looked at in the first week. All right, there's a lot of, it's, this is a land flowing with milk and honey, right? This is an abundant, uh, fruitful land. Uh, and then there's, there's also, and, and so there's echoes of, of the garden. There's also echoes of Adam's task in the garden, right? He was given a covenant to work, to earn his rest, uh, to obey the law. And so there's echoes of that. Mm -hmm. There's also foreshadows of Christ pointing forward to the new covenant. Right? We'll see that in the sacrificial system and other places, uh, things that point forward to Christ. So back to Adam, forward to Christ. But it's neither the covenant with Adam, nor is it the covenant with Christ. Right? It's its own little picture, basically. And it's, it's an elaborate picture but it's a picture that helps us understand the work of Christ when he eventually comes, right? But it's not, as we'll see, this, it's not a covenant about eternal life. It's not a covenant about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a covenant about uh, the eschaton, what will happen uh, in, in our eternal state. It's about this little slice of land on earth that is a type of heaven. It's a holy land in a different sense. So keep this in mind as we work through this in the next few weeks. So the first point here with the Old Covenant is to understand God's holiness in the land of Canaan. So as I said, like a terrarium, in a, uh, like a terrarium is a miniature ecosystem, a model of the world, so too is the land of Canaan a miniature model an analogy of creation. It echoes the covenant with Adam in the garden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey that they must obey the law to stay in. And it points forward to the new covenant in Christ. 
Now, God chose to uniquely dwell in the land of Canaan in a way that he did not dwell in the rest of creation. This is what sets it apart and makes it unique. Exodus 29, starting in verse 42, says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. All right, so there is a sense in which God is the God of all creation, the God of all mankind everywhere, all nations. But there's a unique sense in which he is saying he is and will be the God of Israel. Right? He did not have all nations construct a tabernacle or a temple for him to come and dwell in and fill his glory with, fill his presence with. This was unique to Israel. Right? He came down to earth and dwelt among them as their king. Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. By the way, this was a, a pattern that God showed to Moses. It was a, a blueprint for how to make it. And when he gave it to Moses, he, he noted, look, this is a um, this is similar to the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple in heaven. So this is an analogy here. This is, this is similar to what is happening in heaven, but this is a replica of it, a, a shadow of it, a copy of it down on earth. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, this is his throne, Right, the mercy seat is his throne. And consider that name, mercy. His throne was known as the mercy seat, which is rather unique for a, for a king to be known for their mercy like that. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And Exodus 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. His dwelling place was holy. God is holy, and he dwelt in this tabernacle, making his dwelling place holy. Remember when Moses... Um, met God in the burning bush, right? And he had to take off his sandals because, why? Because this was holy ground because of God's presence there. Exodus 26, verse 33 says, And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, right? So this tabernacle, I'm sure you've seen diagrams, had an outer area that was the holy place. Only the priest could enter, and then a most holy place behind the veil. Only the high priest could enter, and only once a year. But this area, this space was made holy because of God's presence. So that Israel could dwell in the land with God in their midst, they were required to also be holy. Leviticus 20, starting in verse 2, says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Right? This land now has this requirement because of God's holy presence there. The land now takes on a holy character where only holiness and righteousness can dwell. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. 
But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, right? Holiness has this idea of separation being set apart. God has separated Israel from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Right, so this touches a little bit on that idea of a terrarium, right? Their holiness, part of their holiness, consists of what they eat, right? Our holiness in heaven doesn't depend on what we eat, right? But this is a copy and a shadow and a picture of that. It's an analogy. And part of their holiness had to do with the animals that they eat. It was a means of separating them from other nations. It was a way of um, physically and visually separating them. They would not eat with other nations. They were set apart in that way. So there was a condition for Israel dwelling in this land. God made the old Sinai covenant with Israel in the wilderness after he brought them out of Egypt as the condition for their entering into and remaining in the promised land. So next week we'll look a little bit more of that, that journey out of Egypt and into the land. But right now we're just focusing on, on this aspect of the covenant. So Exodus 19 verse 1 says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So God acknowledges that the whole world is his. But this little piece of land is unique. It will be uniquely his, set apart from the rest of creation, and given to the people of Israel to dwell in. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Ma Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the, in the camp trembled. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai <coughs> to the top of the mountain. Right? This, is a, this is a very fearful, awesome, in, in the real sense of the word, a sense of great awe and fear in the making of this covenant, right? They trembled. This was, this was dark and thunder and lightning and God coming down. They, he was told n they could not touch the mountain or they would die, right? This is a very, very threatening um, moment. Exodus 24 verse 4 says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Right, there's a ritual ceremony involving the shedding of blood and, and animal blood. All the words of this law, of this covenant are read, and the people say, they commit to it and say, yes, we will do that. Right, this is a, a formal, as formal as you can get of a covenant. God says, here's what you will get if you obey. And they said, we will obey. It promised an indefinite, abundant, 
fruitful, long life of blessing and rest from enemies in the land of is uh, in the land if Israel obeyed. Leviticus 26:3 says, "If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land securely. I will give, uh, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So that part I underlined there, connecting those two, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and, and will be your God and you shall be my people if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. So far, does this sound like a conditional or unconditional covenant? It sounds pretty conditional. This one's pretty black and white. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 1, says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where they lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statu statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is a really important, pivotal passage here that's picked up on the New Testament. Part of your homework is to read right there in parentheses Galatians 3.12 and Romans 10.5. See how Paul uh, interprets and applies this verse. Deuteronomy 6.20. When your sons uh, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might pervert, pre preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So these are all the positive blessings if they obey. But it threatened famine, pestilence, war, death, and expulsion from the land if Israel disobeyed. Leviticus 26.4 But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you against sevenfold uh, again, sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not bear their fruit. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. Remember the last page was, my soul will not abhor you if you obey, and now he's saying, my soul will abhor you if you disobey. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. 
and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall, not, uh, shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself <coughs> and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Right? This is pretty, pretty stark, pretty black and white. I think in part of your reading, if, if um, some of the reading I had you do this week, uh, as they're coming into the land, God commanded them to set up on two different mountains, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount uh, is it Gerizim. I can't remember. Uh, as they first come into the land to set up on these curses on one and blessings on the other. So as they're entering in, they see on the left hand and on the right, curses and, and blessing. This is before their mind. This is like us coming into Vancouver from Portland, coming down the, the 205 bridge. You know, we come across there, and as we're entering in to the Washington border, on the left we see this giant billboard. You will be blessed if you do all of these things, and on the right, giant billboard that says you will be cursed if you do all these things. So as they enter the land, this is set before them. Deuteronomy 27 verse 10, you shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And Deuteronomy 11 26, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you uh, today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And as an example here, stoning, Right? So you're probably familiar with the stories of stoning in the Old Testament. Stoning was a curse for individuals who broke this covenant. So you have, you have corporate blessing and curse, right? Um, the freedom from uh, war and pestilence and famine, the abundant food, that's something that, that applies to everyone in the nation. But you also have this applied on an individual level. If individuals break the covenant, they are cursed as well. Leviticus 17 verse 10, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Remember last week we looked at being cut off from the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. I will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So it was corporate I, I skipped, I, I, sorry, I skipped a page. <laughs> that was, uh, yep, sorry. That didn't sound right. Um, sorry, did you? So it was a corporate blessing, but an individual curse. Was there no, both, both, both. Yeah. Also corporate cursing. Yes, yeah, so corporate cursing would be, there's war, right? That's going to affect everybody. Famine, that affects everybody in the land. Uh, bad weather that affects, that affects the planting, that, that affects everybody. Disease that breaks out, right? That affects everyone. Um, so blessing and curses both corporately and individually. Corporately also exile from the land. They're all kicked out. It's not just one person. Sorry, correct verse here on stoning. Leviticus 20, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Molech, to make my sanctuary unclean and, pro and to profane my holy name. Right? This is, again, because of God's holiness, because of his presence here, because his name is upon this land. This is why they are being cursed and killed, is because of God's holiness. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch, and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. 
If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. So what we, what we see here, we're not going to get into a lot of detail, but we, what we see with a lot of these uh, laws here is a very heightened uh, sense of curse. A, a lot of things uh, result in the death penalty in stoning. And this is uh, heightened above and beyond what we looked at in the Noahic Covenant, right, for all nations. The Noahic Covenant said, if you murder someone, you shall be put to death. And here now in the Old Covenant, we're seeing a lot of different laws. If you curse your father and mother, um, if you, um, the other one was, yeah, if you, if you drink blood, various different things you'll be put to death because, again, God is uniquely dwelling here. And so the, the requirement of holiness is, is raised. And this covenant was about blessing and curse in this life, in the land of Canaan, not eternal life. We looked at the first two weeks, the two covenants that deal with eternal life, the covenant with Adam in the garden, and the new covenant with Christ. Those are kind of the bookends. And we've got these other covenants in between that deal, deal with a variety of different things here. This covenant was about the life of the Israelites in this life, on this earth, in the land of Canaan. So this brings us to the sacrificial system, a huge, huge part of the covenant. Unlike the Garden Temple of Eden, the tabernacle and temple in Israel had to be purified or cleansed with the blood for God to dwell there because man is no longer sinless as he was in the garden. All right, Adam and Eve could walk with God. They could see him face to face in the garden. Uh, that's no longer the case. Now God dwells in a temple that is veiled, it's walled off. Only one person can see him. Um, Moses was an exception. Moses was able to see him frequently face to face. The other priests could go in the veil filled with smoke and incense uh, once a year. Right, because because man is sinful. Yes. It's a good question. They they had to bring incense in so that it was all smoky, right? So I get from that it was still uh, still a bit of distance there. They still didn't look directly upon him. Yeah, but uh, I, I get the idea. But yeah, I think you probably know for sure since she was reading up on it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they did bring sacrifices in. Somebody had to enter into that that inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was to sprinkle it with blood um, but his his sight was was veiled by the incense even then there's so there is there is this um, this whole system that's now required that was not required in the garden because of man's sin I think it's also important to note that the law as tedious and you know busy as it seems it's not onerous or difficult you know they weren't, they weren't asked to do things that they were not ultimately capable of doing They were capable of doing it. It was actually pretty easy to, to follow it, you know. It, it, was, it was a lot of work. <coughs> it, was, it wasn't like uh, asking us to necessarily go win the NBA championship, right? It was, you're saying it's something that they could do if they were diligent, right. if they prioritized it, if they made it important in their lives. It's something that they could do. Yeah. yeah. They just did what they were told. Yeah. Hebrews 9.18 kind of summarizes this for us. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right, so this didn't happen in the garden. Right? God did not, in making this, the covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, he did not sprinkle the blood of, of animals on them. But here he did. It was part of, he, we read previously a couple times, God talks about sanctifying Israel, setting them apart. This was part of that process. Right? This, this sprinkling of blood was, was consecrating them, setting them apart. So 
what's the almost referring to? What's the part that's not included? <laughs> I think he's just hedging his bet there. He's <laughs> being careful. Um, but his, his point there is if you go through and read Leviticus, it's like, you know, this spoon, sprinkle it with blood. This fork, this lampstand, sprinkle that with blood. It's like, it's a very, very detailed list of, um, of everything there being um, the, the, the temple, the vessels used, the priests themselves, their, their garments had to be sanctified. Uh, the priests themselves had, had blood applied to their earlobe, to their nose. It was part of consecration, setting them apart for that work. Um, everything was set apart for holy use uh, through the blood of animals. And in the same way, um, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 16.1 The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did, with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Again, so this, this covenant relationship was mediated uh, through the blood of these animals. And, yes. Many believed that you had to do that um, to have the blessings on the land, but it was through a different. Yes, God certainly. Yes, God certainly was not commanding them to sacrifice their children, and yet we see this come up as a temptation. Right? This was um, other nations had a sacrificial system as well. But they um, believed that that would bless the land. That yes. Would give them the rain or the crops. Yeah. And so it was a trust which one you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there was a constant temptation throughout their whole time in the land. Um, which God are you going to follow? And so that's why God says, I'm kicking, I'm vomiting these other people out of the land. And if you look at their practices, it was uh, sacrificing their children to Moloch, doing these different things, worshiping these false gods, sacrificing to these false gods. And he's saying, you will not do what they're doing when you come into this land. And that's part of why he devoted those nations to destruction because of their wickedness, so that there would be no trace of them or their worship or their practices to tempt Israel. Mm -hmm. right? And Israel took their time obeying that one and were constantly tempted. Um, so yes, there are competing systems and we'll see that throughout their history. Um, so that's a, that's a very good point for sure. Um, so these sacrifices could not eternally save the Israelites. You can take a look later at Acts 13, 38, and 39, and Hebrews 9, 9 through 14, that, that reiterates that point, that these sacrifices could not save eternally the, the Israelites, right? It could not justify them uh, before God in, in the heavenly places. But they did purify their flesh such that they could remain God's people dwelling in God's holy land despite the fact that they were descendants of Adam. Right, so this gets back to the idea of the terrarium. These sacrifices do not qualify them to enter the heavenly sanctuary. It doesn't qualify them to enter the new heavens and the new earth. But it does qualify them to remain in this terrarium, this microcosm, this earthly holy land. 
right, that's been set apart as a unique garden in a sense. Um, the animal sacrifices do allow them to remain in that land. Leviticus 17.10 If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers or who sojourns among them eats my any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats, uh, eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Right? So the blood represents and symbolizes the life of the animal. Right? So the, the connotation there is that you owe God your life because of your sin. You deserve punishment. You deserve death because of your sin. And he's taking the life of this animal in your place. Hebrews 9.9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. The blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And again, if you read that whole passage, it's a stark contrast between what these, the blood of these animals were able to accomplish versus what the blood of Christ is able to accomplish. Right, they, they painted a picture pointing forward to Christ. They did accomplish something in their own regard, but it was not enough to justify and save sinners eternally before God. Leviticus 16, verse 30, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So every morning and evening, this was referring to once a year, you have the day of atonement, this was a special sacrifice, but aside from that, every morning and evening, the priests were required to offer a food offering consisting of a burnt offering and a grain offering and a drink offering. In order to make them acceptable before the Lord, that he may meet with them and dwell among them, without these daily offerings, the Israelites would not be acceptable to the Lord, and thus he would not be their God. Yes, Yom Kippur is, is the Day of Atonement. So that uh, Leviticus 16, yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. Right, so these sacrifices had to be made every single day. This was a reminder to Israel that uh, they only have this blessing of this covenant relationship with Yahweh um, through the death of these animals. Leviticus 1.3 says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Uh, Exodus 29, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and a, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of uh, uh, fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. Uh, skipping down a little bit, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generation at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There, uh, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron and also his sons will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Um, we've got, um, I stuck this next part in there kind of for you to, to go over this week if you want. If we have time at the end, we can come back to it. But it just goes through all the different types of offerings. There were, there were different types of sacrifices that served different functions. Uh, you've got the first fruits, which was from the harvest. You have the burnt food offerings, which was a whole burnt offering. The entire thing was burnt up. Now that's what was made every day. Um, you have the grain food offering that was offered with the burnt offering. You have the peace food offerings that was made on occasions, and that was actually um, not wholly burnt up. Part of that was eaten. 
right? It was a, it was a fellowship meal between the people and Yahweh. Uh, the priest ate of that as well as the people offering it. And then you have a sin offering and the guilt offering, which was um, a remedy for not just any sin. These were very, very specific sins. You couldn't bring an offering uh, for murder, for example. Right? Any, of the, any of the sins that warranted stoning or things like that, you couldn't bring a, an animal as a way to be forgiven for that. You, there was no forgiveness. So maybe that's you were to be stoned. Part. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe. Um, so the sin offerings and guilt offerings, were, it mostly talks about unintentional sins. It also talks about sins against um, the things that were sanctified for holy is, use. So if, uh, if a commoner came and touched one of the vessels, the spoons or something like that that had been sanctified, they could be put to death. Um, things like that, you could bring a guilt offering to atone for a mistake like that. Um, but it's a very specific list. It's not just anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not super clear, <laughs> but at least the way that it breaks it down. Guilt offering kind of seems to be associated with, like, if you also have to pay something back, like if you broke something or if you stole something, um, then you pay it back and make a guilt offering as well. Seems to maybe be associated with that, but the line's not real clear. It's a little bit confusing. So there's not a huge differentiation between the idea of sin and guilt. Um, but... Um, well, if you look at it carefully, even the, the potentially, yes, but, but the guilt offering wouldn't, again, be anything that you do intentionally. It would be very, very specifically related to um, the vessels for the temple and, and things like that. Um, so the, food, the food could only be eaten by the priest, so if somebody else... intentional sin could not be atoned for. Yeah, yeah. They got something done in just outright defiance. Where did I, where was that at? It's the very end of that. Yeah. Yeah, high-handed, unintentional sin cannot be atoned for. So y there, is, there is some differentiation between sin and guilt that's being made. What, what exactly that differentiation is isn't, isn't super clear. Um, but both sin and guilt, it wasn't for everything. It was for very limited, specific purposes um, that you can, you can read those references and see kind of what it refers to. Um, but yeah, high-handed intentional sin could not be atoned for. They were to be, be put to death. They were to be stoned. And then you have uh, the offering for the Day of Atonement. Right? This involved uh, purifying the priest. They had a, a bull for the priest to sac um, purify him. Uh, a sacrifice for the temple itself to sanctify it. And then a bull that was sacrificed and brought in um, to sacrifice for the assembly, for the people of Israel. And then they took the scapegoat, right? This was a living goat that they brought out. They put their hand on the scapegoat and transferred all their sin to the goat. And then they didn't sacrifice that. They sent that off into the wilderness. Uh, and again, that pictures Christ in many ways. Um, but that was, that was um, that, that goat that was sent out into the wilderness. That was what took their guilt on the Day of Atonement. And then there's different interpretations. Um, was it only, going back to this, this idea, was it only unintentional sins that this Day of Atonement covered? Or was it all the sins of Israel? Was it a way to keep them in the land despite all of their sin? It's, it's a little tricky. It's actually not entirely clear. I lean towards that it covered even unintentional sins corporately. Not necessarily that an individual uh, could be forgiven for murder and not stoned, but corporately Israel, this covered all their sin and, and could keep them in the land is what I tend to lean towards. But it can get a little tricky trying to sort through a lot of this reading into the into the law. There's a lot of details and a lot of, a lot of questions. It seems like with the ambiguity, it does show how gracious God is because none of these things can completely cover. So God's grace is still over all of this in some ways. Like, you're not going to cover every single sin with a sacrifice. Uh, like but the, the implication then, then, if they can't cover it with a sacrifice, is that they will bear the curse for it, though. So they will be stoned or they will be right, but I'm kicked not, out I, of the I land. Guess, yeah, I'm just saying, like, the grace is, is like, you're not going to offer um, 
a sacrifice for every single sin that you commit um, because you wouldn't do anything else other than be at the temple all day. So it's like God's grace gotcha. of like the Day of Atonement covering yeah. all of these sins that you just couldn't make a sacrifice for. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's, gotcha. that's still an act of grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So committing murder, there's no atonement for it with a sacrifice, but God still can't atone you for that. Not through the Day of Atonement. So if, if somebody if somebody committed murder, they couldn't say, I'm going to wait for the Day of Atonement, and then I'm well, good. Yeah, they still have the punishment, but what about salvation? That's a good question. So Were people just sent straight to hell for murder in this, under this covenant? So <laughs> according to the terms of this covenant, this co- covenant could not deal, right, it is limited to life in uh, this life in the land of Canaan. So this covenant itself did not send anybody to hell, neither did it send anybody to heaven. It only dealt with their life here on earth in the land of Canaan when they were, when they were there. Um, so the question is, well then what about heaven and hell? How, how did those people relate to God? They still related to God on terms of the broken Adamic covenant in the garden. They were still sons of Adam under that curse. And if and they were judged, right? We looked in the second week at that final judgment, the judgment according to works that they will face. Um, at the end, during that final judgment, they will face uh, God, and they will be judged according to what they have done, whether good or, or evil. They won't be condemned based on the old covenant, but they will be condemned based on the Adamic, <coughs> excuse me, the Adamic covenant that they are sons of Adam. They are part of. They are under that law. And then in terms of their salvation, right, what, what did we look at with Abraham last week? How was he saved? By his faith. Looking to what? The seed. The, seed, the promised seed. <coughs> so Abraham was saved by the promised seed looking forward to Christ. Right? And in that sense, he was saved by the new covenant. Right? God, Christ um, as it was to come. He looked forward to it, and he, we talked about he participated in that in advance, like a payday loan. So the same would be true of an Israelite here who committed murder. A really good one to read is Psalm 51. We happen to have an example of somebody who committed murder and was forgiven. Anybody know who he was? King David. David. Okay. Now, the real important part is read that psalm and look at what he's saying. What were the terms he was appealing to? He uses the language of the Old Covenant, and he says, I have committed great sin against you. Blood guilt is upon me. And he asked God to forgive him. He said, cleanse me with hyssop that I may be clean. Now, if you read in the Old Covenant, that's why it's important to to learn some of these. Um, the, The hyssop that he's referring to, that was a purification rite if you uh, contracted leprosy or touched someone with leprosy. They would use a hyssop branch and sprinkle uh, blood on you and you would be ceremonially clean from that. Now David is appealing to that language. First of all he says, I wouldn't go offer sacrifice because it's not gonna, it's not gonna fix me here. I'm not gonna do it because there's no sacrifice for what I've done. And then he cries out, God cleanse me with hyssop so he's learning from this example of, of the Old Covenant sacrifice, but he's appealing to something greater than it. He's saying, in the way that I can be cleansed from leprosy, Lord, cleanse me from my guilt, cleanse me from my sin, from my blood guilt. He's appealing to Christ. He's appealing above and beyond uh, the Old Covenant sacrifices, but he's learning from those sacrifices of the principles involved, and he's using the imagery in appealing to God. Um, and according to the Old Covenant, there's no forgiveness but he did receive forgiveness from God. Because of the blood of Christ, he, he looked beyond the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and was forgiven on those terms. So it gets a little complicated, but, but you can start to make sense of it. And that's a lot of what this class is, is trying to navigate those questions. Well, how, how, how did salvation work back then? Um, how is it different from our relationship to God today, right? They are dealing with God on the basis of law, blessing and curse. Are we today in Christ dealing with God in the terms of blessing and curse according to the law? No, Christ has freed us from that. We are dealing with God on the terms of the cross. 
So trying to navigate that as we read these examples throughout the Old Testament and, and see how they relate to us is, is part of the goal here. So that's a, that's a good question. Does that clarify anything at all? Okay. So David should have been put to death if they'd still been living under this law in Canaan. Yes. Yeah, and so that does become a little tricky as we read narrative, right, because narrative isn't always a list of um, oughts and what should be done. It's a list of what was done. And we don't always know, is that what should have been done? You know, should, should it have been handled differently according to the law? Um, so that can get tricky, but according to the law, he should have been put to death. Yes. <coughs> Sorry. How is, uh, in that time, were the people taught about Christ? I mean, you don't see much in all this law telling the people, hey, we are looking for this final mm -hmm. redemption. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you read just the law and everything, all these things, uh, how do you know to look forward to something? Yeah, so this is a really good question. She's saying, we don't read a whole lot about Jesus in here. That's not a whole lot of explicit <coughs> telling people to look forward to Christ. So how did they know to do that? Um, part of it is that they were given the first five books of the Bible as one book. So everything that we just looked at in Genesis with the promised seed and all of that, that was given, they would read that in the same breath as they read the rest of the law. So we talked about how um, you know, Lamech, Noah's father, was, was looking forward to the promised, promised one and how Abraham is looking forward to this promised one. So they have that idea in their minds. They recognize, they know the promise of Genesis 3.15. That's part of their law. That's part of the five books. So they have that in the back of their mind as they're reading this, um, looking forward to this. And, and then they, they get a, start to get more of a, of a picture of that um, uh, Moses talks about, after I die, there's going to be one who comes who's greater than me. And he prophesies a bit of Christ. and what, So they, they have this idea, there's going to be a prophet coming who's greater than Moses. And there's all these sacrifices here. They start to learn about guilt and atonement and forgiveness. And, and they start to, you know, David starts putting it together. Lord, I have sinned. These animal sacrifices aren't going to forgive me. I need something greater, right? It's that work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, um, connecting these dots so to speak. It was much cloudier than what we have now. Um, but the Holy Spirit did work in their, in their hearts to help them put these things to, together and to understand it. And they, they dwelt on these things daily. They were living in the midst of it. They were thinking through these and the implications of it um, more than just kind of an hour a week. You know, it was every day. And, um, and then it also, if you keep reading through, through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, he sets before them blessing and curse, and then he also, God also prophesies and says, you know what? You're not going to obey. You're going to break this. You're going to get kicked out of the land, but then I'm going to bring you back. And he starts prophesying in Deuteronomy 30. You can read that. He starts prophesying of, of giving them a new heart, and he's pointing them forward to the new covenant uh, and the need for a new heart. And, and so there's, there's a lot of th threads. It's not a complete tapestry, but there's different threads that they could pull on and think through and that the, the Holy Spirit could put together in their minds and start to understand these things. But they were, they, it comes with first and foremost conviction of sin, right? That they are convicted of their sin and recognize the holiness of God and that they need something. And as they're looking for that solution, they start to get pieces here, pieces there of, of where to place their hope. Does that make sense at all? It's a good question. It's, it's one, of the, one of the things we can be extremely thankful for is the clarity of revelation that we have today that they did not. Um, it, the work of Christ and who he is and sin and salvation is much, clearly, much more clearly explained in the New Testament. But the New Testament does also explain that, that these prophets did look forward, these different people did look forward in faith in some way. Reading, <coughs> I was reading uh, something that uh, even the IDF now are singing together. Uh, we are waiting for the Messiah or something. So looks like they still have this expectation of Messiah to come. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And especially as they get further and further in their history, mm -hmm. and it all starts falling apart, they're looking for that promised one. We'll get into that in the Davidic covenant a bit. Um, you know, they start looking for a king to solve all their problems. 
and then they're looking for a future promised king who's going to make everything perfect. And so their hope is is they learn more and more and more and to set their eyes towards that. Yeah. Brandon, would it also be like, you know, because the Lord will say through the prophets, you know, I desired love, not sacrifice. And so even even in in the old covenant, it is about the heart of the person where and when you were talking about it, it's like that's where the faith it's like the faith is not in the fact that I'm sacrificing. The faith is that I'm sacrificing to God. And there's a difference there um, because we're not putting our faith in the fact that we're doing an action. We're, we're being obedient, which shows our love and our, um, our obedience to God. It's all about a relationship with God. So even then, it is still about their relational um, nature towards God and the heart towards God and not just an action if that makes sense uh, yeah I think it's I think it's complicated um, yes to to a degree um, God required obedience um, ultimately from the heart of these Israelites um, and ultimately pointed them towards he wanted them to have faith in this, in this coming Messiah, and these things pointing them towards that. Um, let's see here. So let's skip ahead to um, the Laws of the Old Covenant, page 7. Uh, on Mount Sinai, the law of God was written in stone by the finger of God and spoken by God. Exodus 24, verse 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Exodus 31, 18 says, And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with them on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Exodus 32:15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Deuteronomy 10:1. At that time the Lord spoke to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And then Exodus 20 verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes through the Ten Commandments. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So the point here with those passages is that God verbally himself spoke the Ten Commandments. God himself wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger in stone on the stone tablets. And, um, and then additional laws aside from the Ten Commandments were written by and spoken by Moses to the people. So there's a little bit of a distinction here. Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the, that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
and we will be obedient. Right? So God spoke the Ten Commandments. He wrote the Ten Commandments in stone with his finger. Moses spoke the rest of the commandments, the statutes, the laws, and wrote them in the book of the law, the book of the covenant. Only the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The rest of the laws, the book of the law, was placed beside it. Exodus 25, 16, And you shall put into the Ark the testimony that I shall give you, referring to the tablets of stone. Exodus 40, 20, He took the testimony and put it into the Ark, and put the poles on the Ark, and set the mercy seat above the Ark. Deuteronomy 10, 5, then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. And then later in Solomon's day, 1 Kings 8, when they um, created the, constructed the temple, and they moved the ark in, and they said there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And then Deuteronomy 31:24 says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may be there for a witness against you. So there's this distinction from the beginning between some laws and other laws. The Ten Commandments were a clear summary of the law written on the heart of man at creation which had become obscured by sin, but was and remains a rule of righteousness for all image bearers, as they are a reflection of God's character and transcend all covenants. So we talked about this a little bit earlier in week one and week two, and I had sent out an email talking about Romans 5. There was a good question there about the law in Romans 5. Um, if you didn't get that, I can send it out to you, but it talked about this a little bit more. Um, the law written on the heart, this idea that all men by nature know who God is and what he requires of them. There's an understanding of his law. And that's, that's the Ten Commandments that God wrote in stone with his finger. Right, this is what God requires of all men. And then he gave Israel additional laws written by Moses. And these are known as ceremonial and judicial laws. These were, there's a technical word here. These were positive laws. So the, the positive laws are laws that do not flow from creation and might change. So circumcision, uh, the animal sacrifices. We read um, uh, here in Hebrews 9, says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. washings. These are regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the point there is there's some laws that are only there for a time. They're temporary laws. They're for a certain pur purpose, a certain covenantal context. There's other laws that are written in stone by the finger of God. Acts 10:15. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Right, so we looked at that at the beginning. God set Israel apart. He gave them specific laws, dietary laws, what they could eat, what they couldn't eat. And then in the New Testament, God visits Peter and he says, that law is done. It's gone. That law no longer applies. And a lot of these laws pass away with the Old Covenant. But some of them remain because they're applicable to all people at all times. And then the last section here is salvation during the Old Covenant era. During this time, men were saved by believing the promised seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, a spotless lamb who would atone for their sins in the heavenly sanctuary. All right, the idea here, we're building on this each week. Last week it was, they're saved by believing in a promised seed of the woman, a descendant of Abraham. And now a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, who is a spotless lamb who would atone for their sins in the heavenly sanctuary. So we're, we're learning a little bit more about Christ in each covenant, a little bit more detail. And this is, uh, as we discussed here, this is how they placed their faith in Christ. They, they picked up on these things and learned about them. So that is a crash course through the Old Covenant. Right? There's a lot there. Again, we could spend weeks on this. 
Um, does anybody have any questions, anything about what I said or stuff that you've read about the Old Covenant that we didn't touch on that you have questions about? Somebody's got to have a question. You guys are boring. In under a minute, what would you say the difference between a contract and a covenant is? So uh, the different the question is, what's in under a minute, so I've got 60 seconds, what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Depends who you ask. Uh, a lot of people will define a covenant as an agreement between two or more parties. That's a long established accepted definition. And that would fit a contract as well. Right, a contract is a, is a formal agreement between two or more parties. So there's a formal nature to it, uh, to both a covenant and a contract. Uh, a covenant tends to be more solemn with greater sanctions involved for, for breaking that contract. All right, there are more consequences in a covenant. Um, and there's usually a ritual involved of some kind. So, you know, technically marriage is a, is a contract. Right, but we all we uh, understand it as a covenant, right? There's there's a solemnity to it. There's a ritual involved, um, but it's they're very similar. Um, but that that'd be my 60 second answer. Does that suffice? Or all right? How I interpret it is, is a covenant is something you don't break. Say that again. A covenant is something you don't break. A covenant is something you shouldn't break. But but I mean, uh, but, but a contract is something you break for for very good reason. You should also stand by a contract if you sign it and agree to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A covenant does tend to have greater weight, and I think that tends to be um, what is what is being promised and threatened. And a covenant tends to be uh, more solemn, um, but it's a it's a solemn agreement between two or more parties with with sanctions. Anybody else? Uh, let's see. Yeah. So next week we are going to look at um, the part from last week we didn't touch on, which is the fulfillment of the first Abrahamic promise. And then also we're going to touch on how then does the old covenant relate to the covenant of circumcision, right? Because everything we read here says Israel's entrance into and uh, remaining in the land of Canaan was very, very conditional. We looked last week at the covenant of circumcision and it didn't seem to be that conditional, right? God promised that they would inherit this land. So how do those two relate? We're going to look at that next week. Uh, and so look at, go ahead and read. I may email you out a couple more that I remember, but Exodus, Exodus 32, Yeah, 32. Um, I may email some others, but let's start with Exodus 32. That'd be a good one. All right, Father, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for blessing our time together. We ask that you would uh, stir up these things in our mind throughout the week. Help us to better understand your word and see Christ more clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. I did have another question. I didn't. I didn't want to take up class time. But oh, um, that's fine. Take up class time. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs>